My guest in this episode, Dr. Janine Brown, has taught at Bethel Seminary for over 20 years in the areas of New Testament, hermeneutics, and integration. Her many books include Scripture as Communication, Becoming Whole and Holy, and several commentaries on Matthew. She has also published numerous journal articles and book essays on the Gospels, 1 Peter, and topics of hermeneutics. She's married to singer-songwriter Tim Brown and has two adult daughters, Kate and Libby. And most importantly for this podcast, she's a member of the NIV Translation Committee and is a part of the revision project for the NIV Study Bible. So if you've ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes in the NIV Translation Committee, this is your chance to find out. You're listening to Working for the Word. I have been teaching at Bethel Seminary since uh, 2000, full-time. I actually started as an adjunct during my doctoral work in 1995. Uh, and so I have taught at the same school my entire career uh, and uh, currently direct online programs as well as sort of a second hat that I wear. But I'm a professor of New Testament and uh, focus a lot of my research on the Gospels, also on hermeneutics how we interpret scripture, what is behind kind of our thinking as we interpret, uh, what are our assumptions, but also um, what methods do we engage. Uh, and I think all that, uh, her the hermeneutical work really led me to be interested in linguistics and translation. Uh, I do know Greek and Hebrew, and as a New Testament scholar, you know, have to have facility in Greek. And so I got asked to do some early projects in translation around um, reviewing, doing some translation review, looking at a couple books in a translation that was being reviewed and giving my notes. Probably my first more major invitation related to translation was uh, for the Common English Bible, CEB. I was asked to be uh, a translator on the book of First Peter. The way that translation uh, went about getting done was there was a primary translator translator for each book and a secondary translator. And I was a secondary translator looking at someone else's work and bringing in my own work and then pass that along to stylists and the editor. So that was an interesting project. And I've been working on First Peter for a while in the Greek um, for classes I taught and then also some research I had been doing. I have a couple journal articles out on First Peter. So uh, that was uh, probably the first diving in kind of translation work I did. And then in 2009, I was asked to consider coming on to the Committee on Bible Translation, which is the standing committee for the New International Version, the NIV. So in 2010, I joined that committee, and we met for three weeks that summer of 2010 because the second edition of the, a new edition of the NIV was coming out in 2011. So I was involved right at the cusp of that reissuing of the NIV with all the revisions that had happened over the course of time since the 1984. It uh, had been always a wish or I suppose intention of the Committee on Bible Translation to be a ongoing standing committee that continued to revise between publications of new editions. And so I've been a part of that work for over 10 years now and find it very interesting and gratifying and deeply important and rewarding. That's great. If you were to be a fly on the wall in a committee meeting, 
say a typical day, what would that look like? What would that experience be like? Yeah, I think it would be very engaging for people. And of course, at some time, sometimes a little too deep into whether Hebrew grammar or Greek grammar. The the makeup of the committee is about half Old Testament, half New Testament experts, and um, there are 15 people on the committee. And sometimes it feels to me like I'm in a really deep Bible study uh, as we're talking about the meaning of a particular word or phrase or clause or a text critical issue, would be a, which would be about what is the original text likely to be in this case when mul- manuscripts give us multiple options. I learned so much from from either testament but uh, especially as my hebrew colleagues my hebrew expert colleagues discuss fine points of hebrew grammar syntax um, context historical background so they would hear some of the engagement around an issue they'd hear a proposal raised on any particular text and then they would hear deep discussion frequently and they would hear um, somebody a vote at the end of the discussion to either retain the NIV or to accept the proposal, and the proposal might be modified along the way. In other words, somebody might really think it's a good proposal in terms of this seems to be the more accurate meaning of this text given the new information that this person has brought, and and yet the way they put it into English is a little clunky. And we'd like to think in the NIV that our language isn't often too clunky. We try to think about readability, the way an English speaker would say something. And we think about things like register and tone. And so anyway, there might be an additional proposal that says, well, don't, why don't we try this instead of that proposal? But we'll vote on all of that. And um, one of the features of our voting that I really appreciate on the NIV team is we have a conservative policy for revisions to the NIV. Uh, in other words, it takes a good three quarters of the team to change the existing texts. Um, it's not a 50-50 or, you know, so 51% and, and now we're changing the text. It's, it's a really thoughtful, it's got to be compelling to change this 50, more than 50-year-old translation. So can you share a little bit about the NIV's translation philosophy that guides the committee and how it affects their translation of, of some example verses? Sure. Sometimes the NIV has been called a moderating version um, on the scale between an emphasis on form and an emphasis on function or sense or meaning. Now, I think every translation likes to think they're kind of right in the middle of what's they hit the sweet spot, you know. (laughs) So um, but I do think the NIV does really it's a meaning based translation. I mean, everyone has to go for meaning in translation or it's gobbledygook, I always say. Uh, so an example I like to give because I think it's um, it shows kind of where the committee struggles to really land on meaning and yet pay attention to form when they can comes in Matthew 1. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get more of my, my examples from New Testament because of the first ones that come to my mind as a New Testament scholar. So Matthew 1, 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. That's how it starts. The word um, translated genealogy is genesis. We get our word genesis from it, um, which doesn't tell you how to translate it, but it's kind of fun uh, information to have. And that same word shows up in 118, the beginning of the next section, the narrative section that follows the genealogy. This was how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. The The translation birth there is the same genesis. Now, that word is very flexible. It can mean it can mean genealogy, and it can mean birth. It can mean um, the beginnings of something. 
as in how we use the word genesis in English. And so would it be helpful to show the reader that this word kicks off both sections of chapter 1? There are two main sections, 1 through 17 and the second, 18 through 25. This word is an entree point for each. Two kinds of beginnings, the beginning that the kind that's a genealogy and the beginning kind that is a birth story. I'd like to think so. I'm a Mathean scholar, and I love the formal characteristics of Matthew where repetition means something. Repetition doesn't always mean something, but in this case, I think it does. So if the astute reader of the NIV wanted to look at our footnote in both cases, you'll notice a nod to the formal connection, 1-1 or... So alternate reading, this is an account of the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, etc. And then in 118, or the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, was like this, instead of the birth was. So we showed the formal in the footnote because the readability and the sense of naming the particular way this beginning starts, genealogy, then birth, felt important to the committee, I think. But there were enough of us that liked to form connection to say, yeah, let's let the reader know that that same origin language. Again, we have to choose an English word, right? We can't put a bunch of Greek in the NIV. So we, we show the English origin word in both 1.1 1, 1 and one eighteen. I think that to me kind of epitomizes sometimes the struggle we have and the, the way we tend to land on meaning-based translation. We can't always show where that same word, same Greek word shows up in English because every Greek word has a different range of meaning than the English words, number of English words that might represent it. Yeah, thanks. That's helpful. Back to the philosophy and how it affects their translation of certain verses. Could you give us some other examples? Sure. Let me give you a kind of a general one. When I came onto the committee, one of our tasks in 2010 was to review all of the language in the Bible for human beings of a gendered nature. So talking about men or women or men and women, like people, humanity. Because one of the, before I was on the committee, um, as the committee was working toward a revision end of the 90s, end of the 20th century, there, there was a magazine article that came out that did, uh, in my from my reading at the time, didn't do due diligence in getting the right information, and claimed all sorts of things about the um, gender neutral, biased translation of the NIV. I was not on the team. I had read with appreciation the NIV. Um, I could understand some of the linguistic issues, and um, all to say, it, it took another ten plus years for a revision to come out. And one of the commitments was that the NIV committee made was to review all of the language around gender so that we were really thinking carefully about it and, and not doing what at the time was claimed, which was that the NIV was trying to change the language, English language, lead the language somewhere. So one of the gifts that uh, I think Zondervan gave us at the time was to produce a study of English language usage of gendered language pronouns, men, women pronouns, them, um, for plural, of course, but him, her, his, hers. So um, produced a study to help us uh, know where the language was at the target of 2010. So we could use language that was being used. We found out like humankind was going away, humanity, 
was used. Mankind was used as a generic. So we learned uh, what the English language looked like. And it was kind of a unique study um, that was done and we were able to use it. So all that is prefaced to say, when we got to the Proverbs, whereas our Proverbs scholars would want to tell us, um, there's often a reason for using the singular in a proverb, like answer a, a fool according to his folly their folly. I mean, you know, they figured out how to, how do you, if, if, if it's not just answering fools according to, answer fools according to their folly or, uh, and you will be like them. That's kind of the proverb. So it just, it brings up all of the issues of gender, him, her. It's a generic, it's a proverb. The fool can be male or female, but it was important to have a singular cast to that for the, because proverbs are often in the singular. Not always though. Not always in Hebrew, but they are often. And so that it just gives you a sense of the debate. So do we go singular and lose that sense of inclusivity? Although some people hear fool, his as generic. It doesn't quite land on my ear that way. So those kinds of issues, as we're trying to work toward a mediating translation where meaning is important, but form is not inconsequential. And so if many proverbs are singular in focus, fool, his, or hers, but we can't do his, hers. That's just weird, uh, you know, slash. You're trying to, trying to sit in that middle, middle position is not always easy. So I guess that's my example. I wanted to give a general example of how can it can be quite complicated because there's no, not always a simple answer. Now, let me give you an example from the New Testament uh, where we were able to keep the singular but use what's called a singular they. I didn't know there was one in existence. I guess it's been in English for hundreds of years, the singular they. And it's becoming much more in use all the time. Even in the last 10 years, it's increased in its usage. So in Matthew 16, 24, we read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's a singular themselves. Why? Because the the lead subject, whoever, is singular. I mean, it, it can sound kind of like, we'll conclude anybody, but it's a singular usage in English. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? That sounds like natural English to me. It sounded like natural English to the committee back in 2010. Um, so that allowed the singular kind of picture of a one person thinking about following Jesus and then following, and yet not having to have the resumptive his or hers or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Theirs works quite well in that context. So again, I'll just read that 26. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? So in 2010, that was much easier to do than probably in, 2000, in 1990. English language has changed and adopted the singular they quite quite a bit more, especially following a singular someone or whoever, that kind of thing. It's really interesting. Now, going back to the answer of fool, how did the NIV land finally on that issue? Um, stayed with the singular, answer a fool according to his folly. But in some cases in the Proverbs, uh, went to uh, the whole proverb being framed in the plural. Well, I ta- I've been talking a bit about the moderating uh, nature of the version, really wanting moving, meaning-based translation. So really it's about the function of the language, and the form needs to follow in terms of priority. 
uh, and I gave an example where you know we did that. Um, there are some other features of the NIV, and they're not they're not all unique. We're committee based. That's most translations. But I was thinking about how often committee based translation really produces, you know, a better translation than if it's just a few people. You know, sometimes it's just the way we, we rework language and somebody says, oh, but this could sound better. And we, you kind of come to it as a group. And there are these moments of, oh, that's much better than even the proposal. Um, and the proposal was was generally liked, but it was a sense of we can get into better English. So one of my colleagues on the team says, that's great, but let's just move it a little farther really into the English language. So I love those moments where he pushes us to do it as we should in English. Before before you do move into another example, just another question that occurs to me is, how do you guys navigate, or how did you navigate back in 2010, different dialects of English across the globe in your considerations? Was it mainly just thinking about a United States audience, or were you trying to mediate? Well, thank you for raising the question, because it reminds me to say that we have two members um, of our committee, of the 15 are from the UK, um, one member is from India. For a bit, we had two members from India. Um, and one needed to resign. Um, we have one scholar from Australia and one from Canada. And we have recently had an African scholar uh, joining us for meetings and uh, so might be joining the team uh, in the near future. But it's already been at our meetings and contributing, which is wonderful. Um, so we're trying to represent the English-speaking world and, and places where English is that main language, maybe apart from uh, mother tongue um, uh, so, example, you have French-speaking Africa and English-speaking Africa. Of course, um, all of these areas have indigenous languages that are mother tongues to people. Yeah. So, um, But looking for somebody from English-speaking speaking versus French-speaking Africa, that kind of influence is important because they can represent how people in their context hear the English that we're producing. Now, we do have, uh, in, in the UK, there is an anglicized NIV. So sometimes simply spellings are not the same, right? Color and color with a U, you know, there's lots of more U's, U's in UK English. But there are plenty of occasions where somebody will say that wouldn't translate. You know, that just that isn't a word we use. I think we're talking about salt flats at some point, salt flat, like a salt bed, salt land. You know, how do you say that? And that people say, especially like geographic kinds of things like that, ge- geography is described very differently depending on where you are. What a wilderness looks like in in the south of the U.S. looks very different from a wilderness in Israel, which looks different than a wilderness maybe somewhere else. So we do have uh, debates about that. Which one's going to carry better? Because we don't, in that anglicized version, we don't change a bunch of things. We don't, you know, we try to land on English that's going to communicate for the widest group of folks. Yeah, so um, one example, and this is also related to uh, it was during, during our gender review that we reviewed this. Um, in Romans 16, Paul commends our sister Phoebe, a deacon, diakonas of the church of uh, Sancreia. Um, and there we have a footnote. The word deacon refers here to a Christian designated to serve with the overseers, elders of the church in a variety of ways. And then similar, we give a couple of references and it's a very long footnote. And it's because that's such a contested area for different church traditions heightened by the fact that deacons in some contexts are the head people. You know what I mean? So um, in the first century, my understanding of Paul and of this language is it starts to have some kind of role function. This is not a hierarchical 
well-developed structure when Paul is writing this or Philippians when he talks about the overseers and deacons. Um, it, it just becomes tricky because using the word deacon in some contexts can sound um, very much like a surface role in other places, very much like a leadership role, and scholars debate exactly what it, how it functions here in Paul's letter and thinking. And the footnote came out of this committee work of saying, We've got to be very aware of a variety of contexts where this language could say more or less, depending on which one's in the text. And deacon is in the text here, and the, that service idea, which some translations use, she's a servant of the church. So, all, I mean, all that stuff swirling around it, 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 sometimes you'll see a more extended footnote where the committee really just said, is it going to miscommunicate to a tradition that meets today where deacon is the top dog? Can I say it that way? Right. I know. So, some of those long, lengthy conversations are where the committee can do its best work, even though not everyone comes out having a you know their first choice wasn't chosen or something like that. One of the things it's really interesting, and these are I mean I'm I'm on the committee with these amazing scholars, even if they've passionately argued for a view and it doesn't get voted in, it doesn't carry the day. We move on to the next issue, which could be quite unrelated, other than it's in canonical order with the last one. And we just move on and we have lunch and later we have dinner and, you know, we laugh over some silly joke that no one in the world would laugh over because we're all doing this together and, you know, a bunch of geeks, we think it's funny. And you know, so it's just this ability to keep working with it and, you know, not always have your way. I just, you know, I think that's the beauty of committee work. Right. Not take it personally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And if I can't convince them, it may not be the best idea then, you know. And if, mm-hmm. you know, it may be that I didn't argue well, well, oh, well, that's that's what happens too. So sure. um, I think we take it all very seriously, as you might imagine. And it feels like weighty work. So our, we can get emotionally invested in what we think is really a helpful rephrasing or addition, not addition, I mean, you know, kind of some language that that is better than the language we have currently. So mm-hmm. I think balancing that with this humility of we are submitting this to God in prayer and we are submitting, we do pray and have devotions every day. We are aware of the weightiness of the work and we do it as a committee because that saves us from doing things on our own that wouldn't be wise. Yeah. And I was wondering, since you mentioned you know, there's a lot of different geographical areas represented by the group, is that also true of denominations? It is, yeah. The original NIV team and the work groups that worked with, they were really very careful about drawing from a wide variety of church you know, traditions. I mean, broadly evangelical, but Christian Reformed was part of the original movement to get a translation into, you know, get a new English translation. It was a brand new from scratch translation done in the 60s and 70s over, you know, many years. I mean, it took a good 10 years to get the New Testament out in 1978. Uh, so Christian Reformed, there's Baptistic, Evangelical Free, there, I probably won't list all of them. Um, so different church, church polities, you right. know, I mean, so as you think about some of the One's like example I just raised in Romans 16. Yeah, different when different ways of hearing the text and hearing the issues. And certainly different views, Calvinists, Arminians, Galatarians, Calvinitarians. We have diversity on the team in a variety of areas. 
So I don't know if you had another example to share. I do. I was thinking about sometimes the NIV, and I think all translations will do this. At some point, they will be sort of unique among the translations on a particular translation, a particular rendering of a verse or something or other. I mean, often you'll see uh, much more common as you look and there's an issue somebody's raising and proposal they bring, and half the translations do it that way and half do it the way we do it in the NIV currently, or something like it, you know, not identical, mm-hmm. but essentially. But before I ever came on the committee, I required my students to do uh, an exegetical paper on the, the centurion in Matthew 8, 5 through 13. In my own study of the passage, as I studied it and had my students study it, I was really struck by the fact that if, in an English section of the class and a Greek section of my Gospels class, and the Greek students would entertain the possibility that verse 7, which is where Jesus responds to this centurion who has said, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly, and Jesus responds with a question or a statement. I will come and heal him. Every other English translation, NIV. Shall I come and heal him? What I was struck, and this is, I, I did my study before the NIV came out, and I was struck by the commentary. I mean, it, uh, reading in the Greek, there's reason to think there's a question here. There weren't question marks in the early text. So it's about sort of grammatical pointers. And I thought, I thought it looked like a question to me. And as I read commentaries, yeah, you know, maybe 50-50. You know, it was a pretty strong voice that said, yeah, th- this is probably a question. But it wasn't showing up in translations in English. So my English class, this English section, uh, virtually no one would ever say it was a, possibly a question. They had to raise key exegetical issues, and this is one of them. But nobody in my English class could get it that this was a key exegetical issue because they weren't seeing it when I, you know, they asked them to look at different translations. It's such a good way to study the text is to look at a number of different English translations if you're going from English, and they just wouldn't raise it. So my Greek students, some maybe 40% would raise it or something like that. So, you know, I thought, oh, that is such an interesting thing. Well, the NIV, the TNIV came out in the early 2000s, and that's where the question first showed up. It was um, a change made you know, uh, at that time. And um, it now was a question. And suddenly my English section students could fathom that it might be a question. It just struck me how important it was to have that reading somewhere in the English translations. You know, if close to half of the commentators, even a third to a half, say it's it's a question, that's their determination, and it doesn't show up in an English translations, we've just sort of robbed the possibility from so many people that this is a question. You think, well, is this a big deal or not, Janine? Come on. Well, it's interesting because the hesitation to go outside his his God-given mission to the Jews, read chapter 10, 5 through 6, and also 15, 14, where he raises a similar kind of hesitation, Jesus, uh, when the um, Canaanite woman asks for healing for her daughter. So two Gentiles, and he says, you know, he he demurs at first. I mean, you know, this is my, and he says, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this fits the pattern in Matthew. It really fits a theme of Gentile inclusion, but not within the Galilean ministry unless there's this great faith. It's just such an interesting parallel. And I'm really glad the NIV has it as a question. I think that's right, actually. I think it. Matthew wrote it as he wrote the text. He framed Jesus' words as a question. This is a question. 
But beyond that, I'm really glad the NIV did that so that English readers can at least know that's a possibility. And then they might go to a commentary and, and read, oh, hmm. you know, it's debated. Yes, it's a debatable point, but they at least know the issue, which I think is really wonderful. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. One of the unfortunate things that some people have in their minds when they think about the NIV is some of the tough time that the NIV went through back, I guess, in the 90s. This was mainly reactions to the TNIV. So I was wondering, from your own personal point of view, not as an official statement or committee a statement of the NIV, but your own personal point of view, could you help us understand that season a little better? Why people were upset and how the NIV navigated the situation and maybe how that could be useful for other people just to gain wisdom on how to deal with those kinds of difficult situations a translation might face when a lot of people have strong opinions or traditions. Yeah, and um, the NIV, as far as looking in from the outside, because I was not a member um, of the CBT until 2010, so I was looking in from the outside, but I appreciated the NIV, and when the TNIV came out, after all of this, well, could I call it a kerfuffle, a big kerfuffle, uh, I still I appreciated the TNIV as well. Um, I think it became a lightning rod for all of, I mean, for issues that all translations were dealing with at the time. And so that's the tricky part is that it became uh, this lightning rod and other translations were also considering translating uh, Delphoi in Pauline letters as brothers and sisters. Because Adelphoi in the letters means uh, Paul speaking to a mixed group. Adelphoi is the plural of what is sometimes translated brothers. It means, but it's the generic, so it can mean siblings. It can mean brothers or siblings, depending on context. In this context, siblings, Mm -hmm. much more likely, much more accurate. Of course, brothers and sisters is much more warm-sounding than siblings. If I say, hey, siblings... But hey, brothers and sisters, ah, that's right. you know, so nobody does siblings really. But because in English, in the history of English over the 20th century and before, the word brothers, not Adelphoi, the word brothers could be generic. Brethren, I think originally. I mean, it was a generic, it functioned that way in English, much like Adelphoi could function as a generic in Greek. But it stopped doing that at some point. So the committee, I assume, thought, well, brothers and sisters is a better choice here because the letter to the Philippians, I mean, it includes Yodia and Syntyche, chapter 4. I mean, it, it's, it's a mixed group. So, and in, and, and in Greek, if you want to speak to just women, you, ha- you can say, you know, gunai, and that's women. And if you want to speak to just men, you can say either um, aner, to the, the plural form, or adelphoi. Um, and context will, th- but as soon as you have one man and a group of a whole bunch of women, you're going to have to say adelphoi. You're going to have to go generic because a mixed group, even if it's just one guy, will be Adelphoi. You know, 12 women and one man, Adelphoi. So that's what Greek has to offer in the first century. That's the way to say that. So I think they became this lightning rod for that kind of um, gender um, accurate translation, gender specific translation. And people thought it was kind of capitulating to culture when language had already changed a bit. And what's interesting now, 20 years later, is that translations that you would never think would go that way now 
have brothers and sisters like the Christian Standard Bible, what was the Holman Christian Standard Bible of the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, it's it's kind of associated with them. Now I want you to know brothers and sisters. I mean, that's Philippians 1.12. The, their, their recent translation revision now has brothers and sisters throughout. So I think NIV was considering it right at the time, or it was considering it earlier on, but language had already shifted. NLT was already gender inclusive in those places. In other words, for humanity, when it was both men and women, um, thoughtfully so. And uh, so I think it, it just, and this article that was written for World Magazine or something like that, did a disservice because it was implying all sorts of translation choices that weren't being made by the committee. So I think it just was an unfortunate confluence of a variety of things. And it made the NIV much more uh, the committee, it's, I think, just very careful about how translation happened around these issues. And it's why Zondervan commissioned this huge ling- linguistic study in 2009-2010. And then the, the, the response is by various groups, um, Christian groups, that didn't do Bible translation, didn't know Bible translation, were not themselves people trained in Greek and Hebrew and linguistics, came out with all these statements. And so it just unfurled. And I guess, hopefully so again, I I just, one of the the results of that, and maybe it was already in play before that, and I tell my students this all the time, we have so many English translations. We have so many good committee-based English translations. We do what people do when they have too much. We fight over them. And we demonize some and we valorize others. And there's just all translations have strengths and weaknesses. They're all done by fallible human beings. They're translated by them. But the committee translations keeps you from the worst of the going off the rails kind of thing. And we have really good translations. And if you look at them, I, you know, Bible Gateway open, 30 translations listed here in English. So many of the times they're saying very similar kinds of, I mean, they're, they're rendering it very similarly, the whatever verse I'm looking at. Translators are never going to win awards for popularity either. And they're, they're always in trouble with somebody, right? They don't do it to win awards and, and um, miscongeniality contests. So. Yeah, what would be your advice? You know, maybe somebody's listening to this, to this and they, they may think, well, translation committees have maybe some malicious agendas or liberal agendas or something like that. And um, they may be suspicious. What, what would you say to that kind of person who might be listening well, one of the first things I would say is if you have your favorite favorite English translation, um, it could be King James, Revised Standard, New Revised Standard, ESV, NIV, NLT, New Living Translation, that there's nothing wrong with having a fi- favorite Bible translation. Feel free to stay with it. What's the best translation to have? The one that you read. So read it and read the Bible. Read it in large sections. Read it often. Um, and if you want to do more Bible study, read multiple translations. And don't have two or three that you just will never consult because for some reason they're bad. I've never met a translator, and I know translators from all different translation philosophies and translations out there in English. I've never met a translator who didn't want to be as accurate as possible. I just think it's the heart of translators. Mm-hmm. They're not you know, rubbing their hands together and saying, how can we mess this whole thing up? Um, they're saying, how can we translate the Bible more accurately from ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek into contemporary English so that people can read it and be changed by it? These are people of faith. 
who care about the text and care about being accurate. And a rabbi, early rabbi, said, if you translate woodenly, you're a liar. If you paraphrase, you're a blasphemer. Ah, so he's like, he can't win. And again, people don't go in, into translation to become famous or win a popularity contest. They are really wanting to be, uh, make that translation as best as possible. So yeah, that's that's good. It's a good word. Um, I'd say translators are servants. They're trying to serve people who who don't have access to certain knowledge or the biblical languages or all of those things. So I'm wondering sometimes, you know, how how could people actually thank people who have served in the NIV translation? You know, say somebody is listening and and the NIV has really impacted their life and they want to express gratitude to the committee. Is there any way that they can do that? Absolutely. Um, we are sponsored by Biblica, which is was the International Bible Society. Their website is out there, Biblica or International Bible Society. We'll have it pop up too. They are a nonprofit that sponsors translation work all over the globe. Some of the work we do helps, I mean, so this, the NIV um, license that they have uh, helps to sponsor work around the globe in Bible translation. So it's a wonderful organization, the nonprofit that sponsors our work as the Committee on Bible Translation. Send them a note. Send a note. I say, I want, you know, I would like to send a note of gratitude to the CBT or Committee on Bible Translation, and um, they will pass it along. We've had either Biblical or Zondervan read us letters, read us notes, um, the impact of the text. Uh, we get a report for them every year, and we love to hear those kinds of testimonies of how the interview has made a difference. 